Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and this is the first episode of 2019. And here I am, I'm sitting in my home in West Auckland, and it has been hot, well at least hot as far as Auckland temperatures go. Uh, and to record these episodes, I have to kind of I have to close all the blinds and the doors, and I record in this small little room down the end of the house. And what I've discovered over the summer is that that creates quite a uh, a sauna like effect. So I am definitely sitting in the warmth right now as I record this, but I reckon it'll be okay. The, uh, the saving grace for that might be it's a good way of ensuring that I don't ramble on for an unnecessary length of time. Uh, before we get into today's episode. I just want to briefly remind you, if you don't know, that I've uh, I've got a blog at intheshift.com and it's also where I host this podcast, uh, but I've been blogging my way through our journey of trying to start a family and our experience of fertility treatment and IVF and how all of this quite complicated, complicated stuff intersects with life and with faith and with spirituality and belief as well. So if you're interested in any of that, I just finished up the series before Christmas and so head to intheshift.com and you can look for the Maybe Baby series of blogs if you're interested in having a bit of a read through our story around that and some reflections that have come out of that for me. Uh, anyway, on to the podcast for today. And if you have been listening uh, to the first few podcasts that we recorded at the end of last year, uh, you'll notice that the first few podcasts have been themed around an exploration of the dynamics of power and the intersection with faith and spirituality and faith communities. And at this point now, we're going to change focus a bit. Although my hope is that the conversation about power that we've been having is always in some ways close to the surface because it has such a profound impact, not only on the ideas we discuss and uh, the content of those ideas, uh, but actually on the way we go about discussing the ideas themselves. How we uh, consider power dynamics has a, has a big impact on that. Uh, and so I think you'll see that Reflections on power will keep finding their way into the conversation uh, as we go through uh, the different things we're going to talk about in this podcast. Uh, The focus for this coming series of episodes that we're about to head into, of which today is the first, uh, is to really examine some of the ways we talk about God and the impact of some of the things we believe about God. And I think it's probably fair to say that sometimes our beliefs about God can be quite tricky to navigate. If they weren't, uh, then everything would be much more straightforward and everyone would just get along famously well, all agreeing about everything. Um, So they can be tricky to navigate socially, uh, between one another and the differences that we experience. But even in our own personal lives, uh, some of the things we believe about God can actually be problematic in their own way. Sometimes they can cause cognitive dissonance, you know, where you sort of believe one thing on the one hand, but then you've got something, either an experience or reality or another belief on the other hand, and the two don't actually go together particularly well. Uh, But it's also true that beliefs about God and the way we talk about God can also have a real impact on people's experience of life in liberating, transformative, uh, and really uh, beautiful ways that lead to human flourishing. And so the next bunch of episodes that we're going to be going through on in the shift are focused on how we conceive of that which we name as God, because it's a really important conversation. What kind of ideas do we hold about God? Why do we hold those ideas? Are they good ideas? Uh, And where do we get them from? And is there anything that we hold that might do with some renovation, maybe with some uh, reimagination? 
and to think too about how all of this shapes the way we think about spirituality, about even the way people talk about relating to God, what, it, what does that even mean, really, uh, and also the way we interact then with other people. So today's the first in, in that series, and we're going to be exploring some of the language we have for God. Um, and then over the coming episodes, we're going to be having a, a bit of time spent tackling some texts in the Christian scriptures uh, in the Old and New Testament that seem to really clearly portray God as violent, sometimes even quite petty and petulant, uh, and how there's these texts in what we what Christians call their sacred scripture, uh, as do Jews in terms of the Old Testament, um, these texts uh, that are sacred in which God is used to justify war, uh, violence, uh, patriarchal violence, and all sorts of problematic things. So we're going to see what we can do with these kinds of texts. Uh, what's going on here? What are they telling us about God? Or what aren't they telling us about God? Uh, what kind of conversation are they inviting us into? And how might we see some of this a bit more health, healthily and helpfully? Uh, we're also then going to spend a few episodes talking about the classical Christian doctrine of hell. Yes, and... Um, and how the Christian tradition has interpreted certain texts in support of this view, the questions that arise with that, the problems that arise with that, the implications of it, uh, both for how we see God and how we live in the world, and to propose maybe some alternative readings that I think are more helpful and more in tune with the kind of thing that I actually think Jesus was going on about most of the time. And having done that, we're going to look at some of the ways Christians have interpreted the death of Jesus and how the meaning that's offered it to us in this story, I'm going to suggest might be the exact opposite of that, which actually many Christians have tended towards over the years. So yeah, just some light stuff to kick into a new year. Uh, it's going to be fun. The hope is not just to pull things apart and and deconstruct it all, but to do so in a way that then re-offers us some new ways of thinking about God uh, that I think are genuinely meaningful and helpful to us. So this is episode six of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So today's episode is called Mystics and Metaphors. And I want to start with this idea that what we believe functions. In other words, the things that we believe, especially some of the core fundamental ideas that sit at the heart of our worldview, the way we see the world, uh, have a resultant impact on the way we interpret reality, we interpret our everyday experience of the world, and therefore on the way we actually live and engage in our everyday lives. And so all of this means that examining our beliefs is a really important task. It's You can't really just get away with saying, oh, you know what, oh yeah, those beliefs... They're cool and they're interesting, but they don't really matter because they do matter, because they function. They cause you to interpret your experience in certain kinds of ways. And that actually shapes the way you engage in reality itself and, importantly, the way you engage with other people. And uh, it's not just religious people that have some of those fundamental ideas. Uh, we all have those big ideas that sit beneath the surface. Um, the complicated thing, I mean, there are many complicated things, but one of the complicated things about this is that it's it's not always that straightforward figuring out what we really do believe. I mean, there are often things we think we believe that when they're put to the test, 
we find out that we really don't believe them in the way that we thought we did. <laughs> so, you know, for example, we might think and say that we have a really good sense of our inherent self-worth, for example. Um, but then if somebody close to us criticizes us, uh, suddenly we realize we're actually filled with all sorts of doubts and insecurities about who we are and whether we're valid or not. So you could have asked us before that criticism hit, oh, do we do we have a good, stable sense of self-worth? And we might have said, yeah, I do. And then something is said, something is suggested, something is offered uh, that strikes a bit too close to the bone and suddenly you realize actually you're not quite as confident about that as you thought. And that kind of thing happens in all sorts of ways in our lives. Things that we maybe explicitly say we believe, in other words, kind of consciously, if you were to be asked what you believe about this, you might have an answer to that. But then if we were to look at the way in which you live, the way in which you act, the way in which you behave, you might find that you don't believe some of those things that you say you believe. Not really, not deep down. There are also things that we believe at sometimes and not at others. Uh, or times that we live as if we believe things, only discover that we've always had doubts in many respects about those beliefs. So we've just been playing along with the game to make ourselves feel secure or comfortable, to make some sense of our ambiguous reality. And we, we're in this place where we're, we're kind of fooling ourselves, but we kind of also really know we're doing it. We, we've really known all along, and when we actually get brave enough to be able to name that, we're able to say, yeah, I, I saw, I've seen this for a while now. So all of that to say, whenever we talk about what it is that we believe, we're actually entering, entering into quite complicated territory. And, you know, theologians and academics like me are often guilty of thinking, well, you know, all we have to do is come up with the right set of ideas and beliefs and then teach them to somebody and then they'll know them and then it'll all be sorted. And that is just such a radical oversimplification of what is really going on in the human mind and the human psyche, not to mention the fact that coming up with the right set of beliefs to, to, uh, to teach and to give in the first place is an impossible task in its own way. Uh, and then there's, you know, a lot of the beliefs that we hold do just sit under the surface of our everyday life. So we don't wake up in the morning immediately wrestling with the big questions of the universe unless we happen to be in a particular phase of existential crisis, which, entirely understandable, uh, I would not want to invalidate that experience at all because there are certainly times uh, in our lives where we hit those moments where it seems like the big questions are just pressing on us all of the time. Uh, but generally speaking, we can't be constantly asking the big questions of reality and of life and of existence or we'd actually never be able to go about our day-to-day -day life and actually live, you know, if we were questioning absolutely everything. But what that means in its own way is that sometimes, especially if we're unprompted, we can go for a long time without examining the beliefs that sit just under the surface that are really, in many ways, like a, like a default operating system running in the background of our lives, but having, so we're not thinking about it. We're not really conscious of it. We're not going, oh yes, I'm just about to use my operating system. But these beliefs that function that way do have a profound impact on the way we actually interpret and experience life all of the time. And sometimes this is fine, often this is fine. Uh, but sometimes it can also be really problematic. And the things we believe about God actually have a really big role in this because the things we believe about, believe about God uh, often sit very close to the heart of some of the fundamental ways we see reality itself. Now, for some of you, you may not hold to any kind of belief in something or someone divine at all, uh, and that's cool. And that, that belief itself functions in a certain kind of way. Um, not believing in God 
isn't absent of having a function in your life, uh, it itself is a certain kind of belief, even if it's grounded in a certain set of assumptions and, and, and ideas about the universe. But it functions, uh, has an impact on how you make sense of what matters and of what life is really about. Uh, and then for others of you, you may hold to all sorts of different variations of a god or gods. Uh, the multitude of religious traditions in the world tell us that there are all sorts of ways people think about the divine, about God, about fundamental reality, about what we might call spiritual things. And then even within traditions, for example, you know, within the Christian tradition of which I'm a part, there are still really different ways of thinking about God, different language for God, and these differences have real impact on the way people live, even within a particular tradition where you would think you'd have the most similarity in terms of uh, the way people see God and therefore spirituality and the meaning of their lives. So, you know, for example, if God is understood as violent and angry, that can inevitably have a significant impact on the way you see yourself and others and your experience of life and what life is about and how you relate to that kind of God. So I want to talk about all of this, and I want to do so particularly from the perspective of the Christian tradition, uh, but in a way that I hope will be more broadly helpful. And one of the things I think it's really important to reflect on as a starting point is that many readers of the Bible, which is this uh, sacred Christian text, the Old and the New Testaments, uh, that have for thousands of years now been these sacred documents of of the Christian faith. Um, and people read them and have been reading them now for thousands of years. Uh, but many modern readers of the Bible, when they pick it up, they assume that when they read the stories, when they read the accounts and the letters that are contained within these texts, the assumption is often that the people in those stories and the authors of those stories all have pretty much the same idea of God in their head all throughout the text. So, in other words, many people, especially maybe from conservative forms of Christianity, I guess that's probably true, assume that you could dip in and out of any part of the Bible you like. And when people are using words for God, they all have exactly the same thing in mind. So if you dip into the book of Exodus or you dip into the book of Leviticus versus dipping into a prophet who's writing maybe 600 years later versus dipping into a text about uh, Jesus or post-Jesus, um, the assumption often for many people is that everybody's got exactly the same or pretty much the same idea of God in their mind when they're writing and when they're engaging, but that's actually not the case. And the reality is that in, in these texts, in the Old and New Testaments, what we see and what is revealed to us is this evolving and changing view of God. Uh, and at times there even seems to be arguments or at least contrasting points of view that are being argued for about God and about what God wants and about how we are to live in relation to that God. Different conceptions of God contained within the one big sacred text. And I think this is a really important point, even if sometimes it, it can feel a bit unsettling, right? And, it's, and maybe if you come from a tradition where it's it's pretty much, I mean, I grew up with this idea that, you know, God wrote the Bible. And I know that people kind of literally physically wrote it, but they were basically in a trance and God was speaking directly into their minds. And so from that point of view, well, then, of course, everything that's written in the text is um, has the same view of God in mind because God is the one writing it. But in reality, that's not a particularly healthy or helpful way to think about what's going on in Scripture. Instead, 
what we do have uh, is this record of these human experiences uh, and wrestling with this idea of God and what it is that God might be like and what it is that God might be saying. And they hold this kind of sacred history for us, but it's not one big flat text in which everybody's thinking and saying the same kinds of things, even when they use the same words to do it. So what I want to do at this point then in today's episode as we go along is to think about some of the language for God and the concepts in relation to God that are being used in biblical texts and then see if we can explore that in such a way as to invite us into a maybe a different way of thinking about God. So let's think about the ancient Near Eastern world for a minute. And we often use that phrase, ancient Near East, to refer to the region around uh, Palestine, Israel, Mesopotamia, um, up into Persia, top of Egypt, all, all around that area uh, in that kind of ancient world. Um, so the ancient Near East is, is the term scholars often use to describe that world. And this is the world in which many of humanity's early religious ideas were formed, particularly from which we get something like the Jewish and Christian scriptures, but also this is where you know many of the, the Greek ideas of, uh, of the God and the gods emerge as well, coming down from the bottom of Europe there. And in many respects, and in the ancient Near East, and certainly in biblical, what we might call cosmology, which is to say a way of understanding kind of the cosmos, uh, it was quite common to view reality through some version of a three-tiered or three-layered framework. Now, there's a lot of variety over time in these frameworks, and certainly from region to region, and you have all sorts of different versions of this. But let's make some broad generalizations here, and we could describe it in this kind of way. So we have these three layers of reality, and humans and other creatures walk on the earth, and this is the middle realm, uh, middle earth, perhaps we could say that given that I'm in New Zealand, that seems appropriate. Um, so the middle realm is the one kind of, the, the middle layer there, and that's where we live. That's where we occupy space. But God, or the gods, depending on where you were and what the beliefs were at that time, often inhabited the heavenlies above us in some kind of way. Now, some of them did move around a bit, uh, and some of them interacted with people on earth, um, but ultimately the, the location of the divine was above us in some kind of way. Uh, even whether it was on the top of a mountain or riding a storm, or it was it was off, it was coming from above, uh, so the gods were understood somehow to be up there, and that that upper realm there there were different ways of thinking about that. Some thought of the skies as being held up by pillars of some kind. Uh, often, ancient Near Eastern views certainly had a flat Earth most of the time. Uh, and then perhaps that the sky was some kind of dome uh, or that there was some kind of firmament that that hung above uh, the ground. All these ancient ways, you know, this is well well before uh, scientific method is giving us some insight into what's going on as we know now. And it makes sense that that's where the gods, the domain of the gods might be. Uh, and then you have the lower realm, the realm below us. And so uh, in... The Jewish texts, they talk about the grave. Their word for that was Sheol, uh, the shadowy abode of the dead. It's perhaps um, a slightly dramatic way to translate that Hebrew word. Uh, in some traditions, there was a, there was a much greater underworld mythology. Um, but really, what happened was that there was this, or what was uh, conceived of, was some form of depth beneath us, which is related to 
to death and to darkness and to the uncertainty that lay beyond the grave. So you can see this kind of three-tiered framework at, were, uh, framework at play in all sorts of ancient conceptions of the divine and the way people related to divinity. So many religious worldviews, the God lived up above the clouds or at the very least up somewhere. Uh, and ancient peoples developed all sorts of ways of negotiating this world of the gods because if God or the gods were up there, they were also largely controlling or managing life down here on earth. Now, sometimes uh, <laughs> they were... They were thought of, thought to be abdicating their responsibilities and kind of ignoring what was going on down here. But they always had the ability to interact and to control and manage life here. Uh, and so what you get is this development of ideas that maybe if your particular god is happy with you, then things might go well for you. And that's pretty impo- important uh, because they lived in a volatile and unpredictable world. I mean, I know we we do still now. Um, but in many respects in the ancient world, they are at the mercy of the elements that they live within. And if the rains didn't come, you might have a famine that threatens your life and livelihood and the lives of your children. So if you can keep whichever God controls the weather happy with you, then you've got a much better chance probably of getting the rain that you need at the right time. And the world is also volatile because there's a pretty constant threat of violence and conflict. There's competition and there's suspicion and there's violence as a way of solving things. Uh, obviously, wonderful news that we've that we've got over that. Um, but back then, boy, that was a problem. And uh, and you definitely want your god on your side at this point, especially if it comes to violence, if it comes to war of some kind, because the other side are probably doing the same thing with their god, and you don't want to go wandering into a battle with your god upset with you if their god is fighting for them. And so. Different nations developed and different people groups developed all sorts of ways, what we often call the the worship cult, to help navigate this world of the gods, ways to keep the gods happy, satisfied, keep them on your side, uh, I guess uh, at at best, uh, or at worst, just to have them disinterested, not not angry with you as a bonus. Uh, So part of the worship cults of these ancient religious ways of seeing the world uh, relate to, then you have priests who help people navigate the relationship with the gods, you have worship practices that develop, so you have temples, you have statues, you have altars, you have sacrifices that are made, uh, and a huge variety of ways to maintain some kind of mutually beneficial arrangement between us and the god or the gods uh, that are above us. And so you do see this kind of language in some of the ancient Hebrew stories about God. You know, sac- when sacrifices are made, the smoke and the aroma rises to heaven to please God. Help comes from on high. Uh, They're often uh, talking about lifting their eyes to the mountains where God comes from or lifting their eyes to the heavens. Um, Divine assistance often is seen as coming from above. Maybe God is enthroned in the heavens in some kind of way and the earth is his footstool. And this kind of language all actually makes perfect sense in a three-tiered world, right? Um, it's, It's actually pretty logical, based on that kind of assumption. But there are a few problems that arise when we think about God in this kind of way. Uh, Now, one of the things that tends to happen when we think about God in this kind of way is that we do something called, uh, we we anthropomorphize God, right? Which is that God is this one who is up there somewhere and 
we essentially, a tendency, a temptation is to take whatever we think is the most powerful and impressive version of a human being that we know and then imagine God to be an even more spectacular and all-powerful version of that, you know. And so God becomes the powerful man in the sky, the powerful man in the clouds that we can't see that is above us somewhere. Uh, but this very all-powerful and somehow mysteriously all-present at the same time, uh, m- masculine figure usually, um, is acting like some kind of divine puppet master, pulling all the strings, making us move, controlling all and manipulating all of our interactions and our actions. Uh, and in this case, often spirituality is all about trying to appease or please this God in some kind of way. If you show enough devotion, enough loyalty, enough desperation, God will be compelled to bless you in some kind of way or to answer your prayers or whatever it might be. So that's one of the temptations that we fall into when we think about God in this kind of way. Um, another one is that God and the gods are then used as a part of the competition between uh, people who are in conflict with one another. So you have uh, tribal deities, uh, and in many respects, this is something in, you know, in some way that continues now. The my God is bigger and better than your God argument actually still rages and, and helps to stimulate all sorts of conflict. And then finally, I guess, you know, one of the big problems, I mean, there are a lot of problems we could we could talk about with this way of seeing God, but we've actually... We've looked up into the sky, you know. We have developed, we've built planes, we've built telescopes, uh, now we've even built rockets that can take us beyond the atmosphere, unless you're a conspiracy theorist and think we never got there. Um, But I think most of us can agree. We now know that we can get up above the clouds um, and there's no gods hanging out up there and we can climb to the top of the tallest mountains and find that there are no gods sitting around having a meeting or some kind of discussion up there either and in fact we can go out of our atmosphere even and send a rocket into space a little rover to mars whatever it might be and realize that that ancient conception you know we now understand that the world is a sphere uh, and a globe so that old framework of seeing uh, human beings in relation to God or the gods just doesn't hold up, right? doesn't work anymore. Uh, now, one of the temptations then is to say, well, yeah, that's why all of this religious and spiritual stuff is just a bunch of rubbish. Uh, and you know what? I'm kind of sympathetic, sympathetic, sympathetic to that point of view. Uh, I do want to suggest that when you look um, at the scriptural, at, at the views of God that are laid out in, in the scriptures, Yes, there is this stuff here, but there are also other things bubbling away beneath the surface too. There are questions and there are compl- there is complexity and a bit of mystery and some hints and nods and nudges to some different ways of thinking. Uh, and I think if we can pay attention to some of that, sometimes that can be helpful to us. You know, and so one of the things we might say is if we look at the story of Uh, The Old Testament, for example, in which they had this worship cult that developed around the worship of Yahweh. Now, Yahweh originally originally in the Hebrew mind was was really understood as a tribal deity, as their God, the God who had chosen them. Um, There was in in the region, in in the ancient Near East, and in particular in the region that the the story of Israel emerges, uh, there is this uh, God, El, or El Enyon, uh, who is the most high God. And then there are a number of tribal deities 
uh, that essentially report to or operate under the governance of uh, the Most High God. And at times, the way they talk about Yahweh, which is this uh, Hebrew name for, for their God, uh, fits very much within this framework. There's there's talk of the gods, there's talk of the divine council, there's often talk of competition between them and the gods of other nations and so on. Uh, but then also, uh, over time, they come to associate their God, Yahweh, with also the Most High God, El, and so those two ideas uh, come together and form one. And so you have the Lord God, Yahweh, uh, who is also um, the Most High God. Uh, and so you have this kind of worship cult that develops in ancient Israel uh, around this Yahweh figure uh, and now fused with this idea also of the Most High God. But curiously, when you go into the Jewish temple, uh, typically what you would find within the temple is some kind of form or statue or physical image of the God that you could then bow down to and worship to. But when you went into the temple that the ancient Hebrews built, uh, there was an Ark of the Covenant in there, um, but there was no statue, no image, no form of God to be found, so nothing to bow down to in that physical sense. And that, in many respects, was a real confusion to the nations around Israel because when you go into the temple, what do you find? Well, you, you don't find an image of the God. Surely that's what's supposed to be in there. And so you have God in at times within this tradition talked about as the one you actually can't see. And so you don't have the statue of some kind of superhuman man or of a bull or of a golden calf or whatever other kind of divine uh, attempt at a divine physical figure might be made. You have God who cannot be seen. And then you also have, even though I've been using this name Yahweh, um, we don't really know how it's said, to be honest. We know the consonants, which are the, is the Yahoo-ha, uh, which we pronounce often now as Yahweh. But the reason we don't really know how it's said, well, one is that vowels aren't in written Hebrew, so we only have the consonants. And then uh, the name of God was considered to be too sacred to say out loud. But what that means is that you end up having uh, a God who you can't see and a God whose name you can't say because uh, the name is not to be spoken aloud. And there's no real clear idea actually on the best translation even into English. So we don't know how it's said really. And we don't even know literally what it means. But best suggestions come close to this idea of I am that I am or even simply to be or this idea of beingness itself. Um, and one of the things that offers to me is a way to move beyond the idea of just of, of God as another being who's floating around in the sky. There is some kind of superhuman figure uh, toward a God who in some deeper and more profound sense, is a source or the source of beingness or the source of amness, the source of life itself. And that's a way of starting to talk about God that is not reliant on a three-tiered framework. It's not reliant on finding God hanging out above the clouds there somewhere, but gets to the very heart that there's something perhaps sitting underneath fundamental reality itself uh, that gives beingness and life and uh, a meaning to, to human experience and to the cosmos. So that's one thing to say there. 
One thing we then do find is in, with a God who can't be seen and who can't be named is this just overwhelming number of metaphors that are used to describe the divine reality. Uh, and so you have all sorts of metaphors being used all of the time. Sometimes they are quite, uh, they are metaphors from nature like wind and fire and wine and laughter, um, a rock. Uh, or sometimes they are some kind of human figure, some, uh, a father, a shepherd, a potter, a king, a woman in childbirth, uh, a mother hen. Um, on and on and on the list of metaphors goes. So many metaphors uh, that what, what it suggests to us is that an unhelpful way to think about God is just, just to take one of those metaphors and latch onto it and make it everything. And I think at times maybe that's what the Christian tradition has done with the metaphor of father, uh, is take one metaphor and latch onto it and make that everything um, rather than recognizing that it's a metaphor trying to communicate a certain sense of something to us about the divine, but is not meant to be the be-all and end-all of the way we think about God. And certainly, as with every metaphor, has its strengths, but also has limitations. Now, when we get to the New Testament and into some of the Christian texts, then what we find is that Jesus reveals uh, this idea of God to us as being found in the eyes of the other. And so, uh, for example, one of the passages, one of the parables that Jesus tells is about how when you uh, go and visit someone in prison, when you give food to the hungry and a drink to those who are thirsty and clothes to those who are naked, you have in fact done that. For God, this is what Jesus offers in the, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, that somehow, in fact, the divine presence is not just floating around as some kind of mysterious man up there in the sky, and not even just uh, the one who we can't see or can't name, but is actually found present to us in the eyes of the other, and in particular, and especially in the eyes of those on the margins. And then we have uh, when... So that's, I mean, there are many more things, obviously, we could say about uh, what Jesus offers to us and invites us into in terms of ways of thinking about God. And this is just the beginning of a series of these episodes as we're going to unpack some of this stuff. Um, we could even reflect on the fact that when Jesus dies, there's the symbolic tearing. So in, in the temple, in the Old Testament, which was part of the worship cult, right, which was the place you went to offer your sacrifices to God, and in that temple, in the center of that temple, there was a place called the Most Holy Place. And that's where, even though there wasn't a statue or anything like that, that's where the presence of God was said to dwell most powerfully and potently. And when Jesus dies, the curtain into that temple, uh, into the most, most holy place that separates it from the rest of the temple, uh, is torn. And, you know, in one sense, I was probably, I probably, you know, grew up adopting this idea that 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 tearing of the curtain was symbolic of the fact that now we can all go into the most holy place. That's certainly the the kind of the idea of of traditional Christianity in, in some respects. But I wonder if more than that, it's actually it's it's revealing something more profoundly true to us, which is that God was never meant to be thought of as limited to being behind a curtain, uh, hiding in some box 
that could only be accessed by certain people, that that was never where God was really to be found uh, or to be limited to. And so there's maybe a much bigger symbolic thing being captured in this story. So uh, all of that to say that I think there are some possibilities for us that are perhaps sometimes a little more subtly beneath the surface of the text for us in the Old and New Testament scriptures that invite us to wrestle with the idea of God in some ways that I think can still be meaningful and curious and interesting to us and start to offer us some ways of thinking about faith and spirituality. Uh, Now, I'm intentionally not suddenly answering a whole series of questions that spin out of that, because obviously we're going to be talking about this over a number of episodes, talking about how we think about God and what we say about God. Um, But this is just to suggest to you that there is possibilities at play in the text and that what scripture is doing, what Christian scripture is doing, is not trying to lay out for us the definitive 10 points that you should know about God so that you can go away believing them, but inviting you into an ancient uh, conversation of people wrestling with what it even means to talk about God at all. Um, So as a way of kind of finishing up this conversation, I want to think about a couple of metaphors that are particularly potent and that I find interesting and helpful in the way in which I'm thinking about uh, what I mean when I talk about the divine and when I talk about God. One of those was the Hebrew word ruach, which, uh, so the Old Testament is written largely in Hebrew and then the New Testament is written in Greek. So the Hebrew word here is ruach, the Greek word is pneuma, and they are both translated, roughly speaking, sometimes as spirit, but also sometimes as breath or as wind of some kind of way. And This is a metaphor used for God that invites us to think about God not as some man up there, uh, but again coming back to this idea of the source of life and the source of beingness itself, uh, just as the breath is uh, the source of life in us, so also uh, this is a, a metaphor, an image of the divine life that gives life to all things, that gives existence to all things. Uh, And obviously it's a metaphor at play here. You know, in the ancient world, uh, they could look at someone who is breathing and say, yes, there is, this person is alive because they have breath. Therefore, there is something uh, magical and mysterious about breath that comes from the divine. And now in our modern world, we can scientifically analyze it and say, well, the reason breath keeps you alive is for all of these reasons, which I do not need to explain to you because I'm sure you're all uh, people who can uh, remember science classes from school or something to tell you uh, what breath is and why it keeps us alive. Um, And so while science can tell us all of that, I still think the metaphor is helpful to us in, in thinking about what we mean when we're talking about God, which is to talk about not this power over us that has this kind of uh, dominion and um, and forceful presence dictating our every move, but more like something that gives life itself, that is the source of our life. Uh, and this in some ways is about our life being dependent on something or someone that is beyond us, but who is beyond us in a way that is deep and that is close 
And maybe this can suggest to us or offer to us that even when we think we're doing it all ourselves, we're actually deeply dependent, just as we continue to be dependent on the breath in our lungs. So this metaphor of spirit and breath to me is one that invites me into a way of thinking about God that evokes my curiosity and does not send me uh, running from the angry man in the sky. Another metaphor you find within the New Testament is that of love. And so the writer of 1 John says that God is love. And so when we acknowledge in some way our need or our dependence, our decision to share something of ourselves with God, we are not talking about dependence on an abusive power, but on love. So we're really moving away from the tribal warrior deity where it's my God is bigger than your God and let's go to war and figure out who's the best religious person there is. Uh, But it's actually an invitation to see that something does indeed sit at the heart of all things, but that that thing is love. Uh, That maybe because of this, love matters not just because it offers us an evolutionary advantage and increases the odds of survival for humans and human communities, although that may well be true. But something about the idea of love sits at the heart of reality itself. And I find that a compelling way of thinking about um, what matters, about what life is about, and something of what we mean when we start to talk about God. And so these kinds of metaphors, this metaphor of breath and of spirit and of love, for me is slowly reforming my view of spirituality. Uh, What does it mean to relate to God, to having some kind of spiritual practice even of some kind of way. If I start to think about prayer, then I'm not just trying to, you know, satiate the demands of the angry man up there, um, but I'm trying, I'm, I'm wanting to enter into and participate in something that's already happening, this conversation, this movement that's already underway. Uh, and so actually, you know, when I was a younger man, this may not surprise you if you've listened to earlier podcasts, but I used to get pretty, uh, pretty uptight when I would when I would pray. I would I would get super intense about it because I was trying to, in some way, compel or convince God to come and do these things, and so I was trying to get God's attention in some kind of way uh, to to get in God's face, as it were, so that I could say, "God, come on, you've got to come and do these things." Um, and what I find now is my understanding and belief about God changes and evolves, that now I recognize my ranting and raving, as well-intentioned and good-hearted as it, as it usually was, um, might have been missing the point sometimes. <laughs> and that actually, if, if there's this ongoing movement that's already underway, then what I need to do sometimes is to just slow down and start to pay attention and to perceive And this is something I think that the mystics and the contemplatives have practiced for many centuries, this idea of spiritual practice as a a way of entering into this awareness of how there is uh, meaning and connection and movement, and that when we talk about God, we are talking about something or someone that holds this all together and holds our reality itself Uh, in existence and so we're trying to enter into an experience of this or an awareness of this rather than trying to get the attention of this sort of funny old man up there. And perhaps all of this then also gets to the heart of why Jesus, if we want to 
bring it back to the old Jesus character, um, keeps emphasizing that our relationships with one another are not separate from our relationship with the divine. So Jesus keeps saying these things like, you know, you've got to, if you want to be forgiven, you also need to forgive other people. Or if you want to come and pray to God, but you have something against a brother or sister, then actually you need to go and sort that out. Because there's this ongoing emphasis of the fact that, in fact, um, this is not about us just trying to cultivate some kind of special relationship with old mate God up there in the sky somewhere, but that God and the divine presence is found in and through uh, the people around us. And so when we interact with them, we are in some ways interacting with God. And so... How might this transform our relationships, our actions, our behaviours in the world? And what does spirituality look like if this is true? Uh, now, I'm just throwing out a bunch of suggestions to you here. I'm not trying to dictate what you should think about God. But I am trying to provoke uh, your thinking in some kind of way. And, of course, what this brings up for us then is, well, okay, that might be going on, but what, what about all of this kind of, what about these violent texts in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures? What about uh, threats and promises of hell and eternal punishment? Uh, what about this idea that God needs blood sacrifice in order to be able to forgive people of their sins? Uh, what's going on with all of that stuff then if this is all really about love and so on? So uh, that's where we're going to go from here. We're going to start to tackle some of those things and unpack them and see where it takes us. And there's lots to talk about and lots to discuss. And at times it's a bit dense and a bit heavy, but it's also, I think, uh, an invitation into some liberating ways of thinking about God and therefore about your life. And so there we go. Uh, that is episode six of In The Shift. Look forward to seeing you next time. If you want to, head to intheshift.com. And you can read blogs there, but you can also engage in conversation. You can get in touch with me if you want. Send me thoughts, reflections, stories, ideas, questions, uh, whatever it is that's coming into your mind as you're listening to this and engaging with some of what we're doing. Uh, I'd love that. All right. See you next time. <laughs>